0: You're listening to Country Music Success Stories, featuring Music City mentor, J.C. Don Valeris. Now, here's your host, Cadio Terry. We've been getting lots of emails from listeners saying they love the show, but they don't know anything about the hosts. So, here we go. It starts out with an email J.C. sent to me in 2019, introducing herself as a singer-songwriter living in Nashville. It turns out she was from Chelmsford, which is a little town north of Boston, and she'd grown up listening to me on the radio. What started out as an email exchange turned into a friendship, and the idea that we needed to somehow join forces and chase our goals and our dreams together. So I featured JC on my weekly podcast series, the story behind her success. Check that out, by the way. And I learned all about her company, Platinum Circle Media. She'd been living in Nashville for about 10 years, and she had decided to step away from singing in order to focus on her social media marketing company. But I asked JC to record the song you're about to hear with me. Somehow, I knew it was what we both needed. And it was. If I should lose my For this interview, we returned to the same studio where we recorded that duet. It's located right near the ocean in Marshfield, Massachusetts, owned by a guy named Crit Harmon, who's a guitarist and a producer. In fact, he's the guy playing the guitar on our theme music. This is the place where we decided to tell the rest of our story. I started out by asking JC how old she was when she first started singing.
1: I started singing when I was about five or six years old. I sang at my kindergarten graduation. That was my (laughs) first performance. And I was brave enough somehow to ask my kindergarten teacher if I could stand up and sing in front of the class. I was a very meek and mild and introverted child, but music spoke to me. So I always wanted to be a part of it. So I started singing super young. And then as I grew up, I started singing at church and with church comes weddings and funerals. And so funerals paid pretty good money. I hate to say that it sounds awful, but it paid well. And so I took that as a
0: job in high school. I'm guessing you probably sang songs like Amazing Grace and On Eagle's Wings and things like that. My Mother's Hands, all of those beautiful
1: songs. And When I look back, it's interesting because, you know, I would go to school in the morning dressed in my black velvet dress. I would leave in the middle of the day, go sing at a funeral, come back with a hundred bucks in my pocket and my black velvet dress. No wonder I was searching for friends candy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, but country wasn't cool when you started making your way in country music here in Massachusetts. Tell that story. I loved Leanne Rimes.
1: How could you not love Leanne Rhyme? She was the exact same age as me. And I heard her on the radio and I started singing country music. And country music was not a popular thing in Massachusetts when I started. Like you said, it was not cool. Now it is. Now it's exploded. But when I began, no one was listening to it. And I loved it. I thought it was cool and different. So I formed a band and started performing at every venue that would have me. I started opening for artists, and one thing led to another, and then I I eventually went down to Nashville and started writing songs down there.
0: Well, there's a lot more in the middle of that, though. So weren't you part of some sort of like a Christian girl group? Like, I know you played at Madison Square Garden. I did. So I started
1: singing, like you said, with this group of girls in church, And we got on a political circuit and within that political circuit was all of the events that every governor, mayor, anyone in the area was putting on. So that led to us performing for a big event hosted by Ted Kennedy. And Ted Kennedy took a liking to us, and he asked for us to perform for Bill Clinton when Bill Clinton came to Lowell to speak. And so that was a huge door opening for me because I remember the photos from that day, and it's just like wall-to-wall press, cameras, news people. It really gave me the opportunity to be in front of a lot more people on a more national level, and that opened the door for me. So Angels Among Us was a very well-known Christian group. And we were asked to open the International Music Festival at Madison Square Garden in New York City. It was almost like a showcase. Nowadays, artists yeah. do showcases. That's ultimately what it was. And Sony Records was actually interested in signing us, but they wanted to take us more in a Christian route. And you asked earlier about the country music thing. That's kind of where I made my decision that I wanted to branch off into country. It was kind of a crossroads for me. I was either going to go the Christian route with these girls Or I was going to stay true to what I love the most, which was a little bit of a riskier move because I had almost a guaranteed thing with the girls. But I chose to stick with what I loved more than anything, which was country music.
0: How about vocal lessons? Did you take formal vocal lessons when you were growing up? Because you sure did sing an awful lot. I didn't. I didn't take
1: formal vocal lessons. I took performance lessons. So I had a coach that coached us on how to be on stage and how to give an interview and all of that kind of thing. But... I regret not taking proper voice lessons and that's something that I I haven't talked about that much, but it led to me having a lot of vocal issues down the road. And I would encourage anyone, if you have the opportunity, as young as you can possibly start taking
0: voice lessons to do that. Let's talk about your family. I'm going to guess that your family had to kind of pitch in and be part of all this. Well, how did this go? Well, when I first started singing at bars and
1: nightclubs, I wasn't even old enough to get in myself. I was under 21. So I had to be accompanied by a parent. How crazy is that? Yeah. So my parents always had to be there with me. So every Friday and Saturday night for years, we would drive all over New England. I'm talking sometimes it was like a four hour drive and my set wouldn't begin until nine o'clock. You know, you're a singer. And so being on stage from nine to midnight or nine to one and then my parents would have to drive me home. We wouldn't get home till the early hours of the morning and then do it all over again the next night.
0: Let's talk about some of your very favorite people that you've opened for.
1: My favorite memory of opening for someone would absolutely be Leanne Rimes because like I said she was the reason that I got into country music and she was always just the person that I most identified with and having the opportunity to share a stage with her was a lifelong dream so I got the call to do that when I was down in Nashville and I had 48 hours notice and this was at a time when I was flat broke I didn't have five dollars to my name So my husband and I rented a car with the money that I was being paid to do the show and drove straight. It was about 18 hours. We got in super late the night before, and I think my set was at 1 p.m. or something the next day. I did the show with her. She was more than accommodating. She was so sweet. And the thing that stands out to me the most about that memory is I have opened for a lot of artists. She's the only one that has ever stood on the side of the stage and watched my set before hers. That really left such a huge impact on me because I know what it's like to admire somebody and it's just a really, really cool experience.
0: Speaking of cool experiences, I do remember you telling me a story that Willie Nelson, when you opened for him, wanted you to smoke a joint with him. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I can't believe you're bringing this up. Of course that's
1: true. (laughs) So I did open for Willie Nelson. That is very true. This was not the night that I was opening for him. I was at another event in Nashville. And yes, I had an invitation to go on Willie's bus. (laughs) A little smoky over here, I declined. I hate to say it. I declined. And there's a little part of me that regrets it every now and then because, you know, I don't think too many people get that invitation.
0: You mentioned your husband. So I want to talk a little bit about him. This is a singer who fell in love with her guitarist. JC, tell us the story. The forbidden
1: thing to do, right? The
0: forbidden fruit.
1: Mike Valeris auditioned to be my guitar player. He walked down the stairs the very first day of rehearsal. And I looked up at him, and I—I I swear to you, I said I'm going to marry this man. I—the very first minute I looked at him, I didn't care at all what he sounded like. <laughs> he's going to kill me for saying that, but it just I didn't. so happens that he's like one of the best guitarists in America. He really, he, he really, really is, is very, very, very supremely talented. talented. Yeah. But I didn't care much about that that day. And we started dating and we kept it a secret from everyone. No one in my band knew. Nobody knew. And then we decided we had to probably tell everyone because we were moving to Nashville together. So we finally broke the news and we've been together now 14 years and we've been married for six years.
0: He's a master guitarist, a Berkeley grad, works at Belmont in Nashville. I mean, just really superb. I'm very proud of him. And he's not sick of me yet because I get to stay with you guys when he I come back. He is today, not. So. He is not
1: sick of you. He loves you very much. So, shall we talk about this whole Nashville situation?
0: I have never felt more comfortable in an American city than I've felt when I come to see you and Mike in Nashville. It's a really cool place to be, and I love the vibe. And if you're a singer, a songwriter, a musician, you feel like you're kind of like among the people in your tribe. So I've loved every minute that I've spent with you in Nashville, and especially our work together around country music success stories. So much fun.
1: So I want to talk about how all of this really came to be. You have had such a long and incredible career in radio. And in 2015, you made the decision to leave your comfortable everyday job (laughs) at Magic 106.7 to pursue all of your other goals and dreams, one of which was starting your own podcast, the story behind her success.
0: Tell me about that decision. I loved my job, I loved Magic (laughs) 106.7. Magic 106.7 A greater media station just after 10. Hi, it's Candio. We don't just say we're going to play a lot of soft rock. We do it. The most music lives right here. WMJX WMJX HD1 Boston And I started as the secretary to the program director. And I rose through those 25 years to do afternoon drive and then to do morning drive and to be someone who was known and to this day by a lot of people in this city. But boy, I tell you, when they moved me to morning drive and I had to get up at 3.30 in the morning, I got to tell you, you know, clearly I'm a person with energy, right? This broke me. (laughs) This broke me in half. I was so tired in the afternoon that I felt like I couldn't drive a car, you know? And what it also did was it sapped my creative energy so that really all I could think about Starting at about 3 o'clock in the afternoon was, how quickly can I go to bed now? And so I made the decision that I wanted to leave the station. And I really wanted to exit gracefully. My contract was up. We had nice discussions about what I might or might not be able to do. And the decision that I made was, I'm going to turn the page and I'm going to move on. All the things that radio gave me, the platform that radio gave me, was suddenly gone. Instead of having two million people listening to me per week, zero people were listening to me. People knew my name, but I had to quickly capitalize on that. So I started a podcast series called The Story Behind Her Success. So, the story
1: behind her success features interesting women all over the world. From every walk of life. And
0: you've interviewed close to 800 women at this point. Well, I had started interviewing women on Magic through my program, Exceptional Women. So, and that had won just about every award that you can possibly win in the broadcasting industry. And I thought, well, I'm really good at that, so why don't I do more of it? And I loved it. I love hearing women's stories. And I love celebrating women's lives because I'm an only child and my mom died when I was a teenager. So I always missed her so much. And I, quite frankly, JC, my mom wasn't there when I got married. She wasn't there when I had my baby. She wasn't there when I had questions to ask, you know, what do you do when the baby cries, right? And so I've always kind of learned about how to be a woman, how to be a successful woman from the women I've interviewed. They've taught me so much.
1: After we got to know each other, after we became friends, and you were on the show and you were great, I was on the show, guest number sixty-seven. I will never forget it. My most nervous moment of my entire life. <laughs> You're doing really Was well being right now, interviewed by, by Candy O'Terry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm not
1: mean or nasty or anything. Not I'm not at like all. an investigative reporter. Not at all. I loved you from the minute I met you. But you know, after after listening to all of these incredible stories of the women that you've interviewed. I had the idea that it might be fun for you to come down to Nashville and interview a couple women. That's right. And the reason I thought about this was because it married two of the things you love the most, which are music and singing and songwriting and then interviewing.
0: So we had thought, well, why don't we just do a four-part series on women in music in Nashville? That was the original idea. So we kicked that off with a little visit to the 500-acre compound of Naomi Judd. I mean, what? I I couldn't believe you nailed that interview. And uh, here I am sitting across from Naomi Judd having a conversation, as she called girl talk, that lasted like, what, an hour and a half? Like she told us the whole story of her life. She crazy. did. It was
1: unbelievable. And Naomi Judd was one of my biggest influences when I was growing up. So to just be there on her farm in her presence. Yes. And do you remember the moment when she was talking about all of her life experiences and her husband, Larry Strickland, who was also a guest on our podcast, That's was right. sitting next to Sang me on the couch? For Elvis Presley. He mm-hmm. did. He was sitting beside me on the couch and Naomi turned at one point and she said, What are you crying about? It was that the stories that she was telling were so moving that her husband was
0: crying, sitting next to me. And he hadn't even heard some of these stories. He hadn't. So when you're telling stories the husband hasn't even heard, you know that it's an up-close and personal experience. So she was great. Then we moved on to your good friend Kelly Lang's house. She welcomed us with open arms into her beautiful gourmet kitchen. And we got a chance to meet her husband, T.G. Shepard. And then he said, hey, are you going to interview me? I said, yes, we are. So we came back the next time, talked to him. We talked to Jeannie Seeley, who's one of the grand dames of the Grand Ole Opry. And, you know, we got to hold her Grammy. Come on. And one of my favorite
1: moments, I think when I think I back on all of saying. our interviews. I know, I
0: know.
1: Am I going to tell the story tell about the story. Yes. <laughs> Candy was sitting down on... A couch, a beautiful little couch. Outside. Looking over the Cumberland River. And when she stood up after the interview, there was cat hair.
0: All, all over my ass.
1: over her. And Jeannie snapped into action and she went into her house and grabbed a
0: lint roller and came out and delinted Candy's But (laughs) To which point I said JC roll Roll tape And we sure did Roll tape And we do have that Don't we So
1: aside from all of these Incredible life stories We're also getting these Really fun Interesting
0: moments With some of the Biggest stars In country music Well, first of all, being in a room with Crystal Gale, and I'm telling you what, when she walked in the room, I was like, oh, God, I hope her hair is still as long as I remember it. And it was all the way down to the floor. We got a chance to ask her how long it takes to wash her hair. We found out not that long and she does it by herself and it's no big deal. But she also let us sing with her. She did. And we were like, can we just do like the last few lines of Don't It Make My Brown Eyes Blue? And she was like, why, of course you can. And we were like in heaven. Don't it make my brown eyes. Don't it make my brown eyes. Don't it make my brown eyes blue. (laughs) You guys sound great.
1: That's awesome. (laughs) One of the things that I think makes all of this so special is that you and I are such super fans of music. And that goes way back for you. That goes back to the days when you started singing. (laughs) So I want to ask you about that because I think it plays such an important role with you interviewing these artists. The fact that you have a background as a singer, I know it has helped me immensely. So talk to me about your
0: early days being a singer in the Boston area. I think it gives us credibility. You're sitting down with the cream of the crop, so you better bring it. You better know what the heck you're talking about. So I feel like that's helped me tremendously. So when I was a little girl, all I ever wanted to do was sing. And my father very cleverly bought me a microphone with a cord and no amplifier. (laughs) So I would stand in front of a full-length mirror with my microphone and a cord that went nowhere and sing my songs, okay? (laughs) And I used to have plays in the backyard. I would charge people to come to my plays, and I would play all the major roles. I was that girl. And I was also really into Broadway. I loved every Broadway play. I memorized every line. I memorized liner notes. Little did I know that years later on the radio, all that information would help me. I also grew up under the wing of some of the greatest broadcasters of all time. I listened to WABC, which was the superpower, huge station in New York City. I grew up in suburban Connecticut. So I listened to all the big DJs, and I would memorize some of the things that they said coming out of songs. Little did I know I would use that later. But the singing part, I sang with a group called, wait for it, Up With People. (laughs) And I do usually need an entire bottle of wine to sing some of the songs that we sang together. But like you... Being part of a group like that, being part of a gigantic group, and I was one of the youngest singers, was such an honor because there was so much discipline involved. You know, you had to listen to the choir director. You had to make sure you were singing your part when you were supposed to. And the sum of the whole is what I loved about being part of Up With People. It was the sum of many parts. And it really taught me how to be a performer and how to be a team player, very much so. And then as I grew a little bit older, you know, I hate to throw a little damp towel on the whole thing, but I'm the only child of only children. And my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer when I was 14 years old. So all of my high school, when I would have given my right and left arm, to have tried to do something like you did with all of your family support, I couldn't do. My parents were divorced. My father was 100 miles away from me. I saw him on the weekend. My mother was actively dying for four years. So it was really a tough time. And I went to Boston College, and I started singing in coffee houses. So I was that girl, you know, with a couple of guitars singing Stevie Nicks songs and, you know, singing Linda Ronstadt covers. And these were my idols. And then I fronted a band all throughout the 1980s. I had the shoulder pads. I had a very short haircut with a tail. And I sang Whitney Houston songs, Madonna tunes. I sang Sheena Easton, my baby takes the morning train at weddings and big conferences, things like that.
1: So it must have been such an easy transition for you to go from being on stage singing to being behind a microphone on the radio interviewing artists. I
0: got on the air on a fluke. I was the secretary to the program director. And we had a disc jockey who was an exterminator by day and a disc jockey by night. And he had six children. And he was a tired guy. And he kept falling asleep on the radio. And my boss said to me, give him a call and tell him if he falls asleep one more time, we're going to have to let him go. Well, how do you know when someone's fallen asleep on the air? Well, it's pretty interesting. When someone falls asleep and they fail to hit the next button, there's 30 seconds of silence. And then after that, back in the day, a tape would go on. Today, it's all digital and it's tripped from the board. But when the program director gets to work in the morning... There's a light that flashes in his office, and it has a timestamp of exactly what time we went off the air and for how long. So this poor guy fell asleep twice. I'm supposed to call him back. If you ever fall asleep again, we're going to have to let you go. So Gary falls asleep that night for the third time. And my boss comes over to me on a summer weekend in July, taps me on the shoulder and says, you're on tonight. And I'm looking around to see who he could possibly be talking about. Because it couldn't be me. I'm a secretary. I have never been on the radio in my life. I've gone to broadcasting school. I have a a license to broadcast. So I went on that night. And I'm telling you right now, I sucked completely. I was horrible. I didn't even really talk till 3.15 in the morning. But my boss was a great mentor. So from that moment on, my career on the air started. But how do you learn how to be an interviewer? I had an idea for a show called Exceptional Women. So I went to the woman in the newsroom that I admired the most, which is a really good lesson to learn. Always go to the person who does what you want to do the best. And her name is Gay Vernon, and she taught me everything I know. There's a skill and an art to that. It took me a while to learn it, though. You ask every singer that we interview,
1: what they were doing the first time they heard themselves sing (laughs) on the radio. But do you remember the first time you heard yourself speaking on the radio?
0: Well, here's something very funny about that. When you're on the air, you have to air check yourself, which is interesting. So, you know, now it's digital. But when I got started in the 90s in radio, you'd take a cassette tape, you'd pop it in a machine, you'd press record. And when every time you turned your microphone on, It would trip the cassette player and it would record every single word you said on the radio right so I would then take that cassette tape after I'd get off the air and I would pop it into my car cassette player and I would therefore be able to hear every single thing I said on the air so I'd be like oh god that was so dumb oh why did you say that oh you sound terrible oh you stepped on the vocal oh you suck right because that's my personality But the first time I ever heard myself talking on the air was singing jingles and doing voiceover work, which I had done for years before I got on the air.
1: Okay, I'm going to take a minute to brag about you because I can. You've
0: performed with the Boston Pops. Yes,
1: I have. You've interviewed almost 800 women. You've been in movies most recently, the Netflix movie you're being featured in called Misha and the Wolves. That's so exciting. You are a Massachusetts Broadcaster of the Year. Yep. And you have so many awards in your house that I have lost count. Thank you. What has been the coolest, I can't believe this is happening to me moment so far?
0: Boy, that's a really good question. Uh, this Misha and the Wolves thing is pretty cool, I must tell you. Way back in 1997, I interviewed this woman named Misha And the BBC wanted to do a big documentary on her. And mine was the piece of sound that they found along with Oprah's clip. I mean, what are the chances of that? But the coolest thing that's ever happened to me ever, ever, ever is hearing my own song on the radio. So there's a very famous guy on Magic 106.7 named David Allen Boucher. And if you come from Boston, you know this guy's name. He talks very slowly and he's got this really sexy voice. I and loved him growing I know. up. I
1: loved his voice. And I wanted to marry
0: his voice. Jim Brickman and I recorded a song together. Actually, he gave me his his tracks to a very, very famous song of his called The Gift. I recorded that song with David Corey, who was a program director, and music director over on our competitor, KISS 108. So we record the song just in time for Christmas, and my boss loved it. He goes, well, we're going to play it on David Boucher's show tonight. I was like, Oh my god, dream come true So I said, please don't play it too soon I want to make sure I get home in time Because I want to pour a glass of wine I don't know where I want to be sitting or standing Or what room I want to be in And I remember it was in my kitchen With my glass of wine in my hand And he said, now I'd like to play a song for you By our very own Candy O'Terry And Jim Brickman, this is The Gift When a snow is falling down Children laughing all around Lights are turning on Like a fairy tale come true Sitting by the fire we made You're the answer when I prayed I would find someone and baby, I found you And
1: I was like, I can die now. <laughs> That's great. That's so funny. Did I ever tell you the first time I heard myself on the radio? No. It was on talk radio. Weird. On WBZ Radio. Flame-throwing AM station. Paul Sullivan was doing his show on WBZ at the time, and his uh, stepdaughter, Colleen, was in the group that I sang with, Angels Among Us. And it was right after September 11th, we had recorded a song called American as Apple Pie. And Paul was kind enough to roll as much as he could on talk radio, because you know you couldn't play a full song, you know? Right,
0: like he probably gave you like 15 seconds, That was all enough. I needed.
1: That was all I needed. I was in the kitchen with my mom and dad. It was, so it was 2001. I, was, I had just turned 16 years old. And I was jumping up and down in my kitchen. I couldn't believe it. It
0: was There's the biggest dream There's something about true. hearing yourself on the radio that really, really makes you feel as if, and our artists tell us this, that you've gone from the little recording studio maybe where you recorded the song or even a big recording studio and you're just hearing it in the monitors. But when you know that people are hearing it in their cars and their kitchens and it brings it to a bigger level, right? It really does. There's something
1: so special about it. And it's so interesting that every single artist we've sat down with knows. They
0: remember every moment. Let's talk a little bit about what it was like for you to pack up your U-Haul truck and move to Nashville. I had $600
1: in my bank account. I had no job set up. All I knew was that I had to be in Nashville. It was one of those things that I had known for a really long time. And if I didn't do it, I just knew I would regret it for the rest of my life. So Mike and I made the decision. We had gone down to Nashville about three months before we moved and found an apartment. We weren't able to see the apartment we were moving into because it wasn't ready yet. So we moved down there in a U-Haul truck with Mike's car on a flatbed pulling behind (laughs) it with absolutely no idea what we were walking into for an apartment. Thank God it was a beautiful, beautiful (laughs) apartment I showed you. I took you by there on one of our trips. The memory that I remember the most is standing in the driveway right before I got into the truck and my dad and my mom were standing in the driveway and my dad handed me the very first dollar bill that I ever got when I was born that he had put inside of a little piggy bank and he handed it to me and he said, don't ever spend this dollar and you will never be able to say you're broke. And I will never forget that as long as I live, I still have the dollar. And I remember crying about, you know, the first 50 minutes of the ride, thinking, what am I doing? Am I making the right decision? You have to jump off the cliff every once in a while, huh? You really do. And I think leaving your comfort zone is the only way that we grow and we learn And you opened yourself up to a new experience that you would have never had if you didn't take the chance to do that. It's so important.
0: So speaking of new experiences, you and I started a company together, which is called Two Dreams Entertainment. And it's, you know, Country Music Success Stories is under that umbrella. We've got a new distribution deal with a company called Mudhouse Media, which is owned by Chris Meyer, who's very famous for uh, the Farrelly Brothers, right? And they've kind of handpicked our podcast to, you know, be one of the 10 podcasts, I think, that they're going to distribute. So it's really a great honor for both of us. And part of the Country Music Success Stories brand is Music City Mentor. Talk about that. I just think it's so important for a young
1: artist to be educated on what the music industry is all about, especially the Nashville music industry. It has its own thing. And when I moved down there, like you said, I went down there pretty blindly. I had maybe one or two connections. I knew a few things about it. But It took me years. I'm talking years. I've lived there now 12 years. So it took me a long time to get my feet Flat on the ground and understand how all of that worked. And I just thought to myself, if I could save another young artist coming down here half the trouble that I went through, it would make me very happy. And one of the things that started happening to me is after I moved to Nashville, I started getting a lot of letters, emails, messages on social media from younger artists, primarily in the Boston area, asking me advice. What is it like there? What do I do when I get there? Tell me about publishing. What do I have to know? And I actually started saving all of their questions in a document because I thought if I ever have the chance to sit down and really put some thought into all of these questions, it could be very helpful. So about three years ago, I decided to launch a YouTube channel and I started recording videos in my house. Every single week, I would do a new video with a different question that had been sent to me. And overnight, this channel started growing. I was blown away. I kept saying I begged all of my family to watch and to subscribe because I didn't want to be, you know, have 10 views on all of my videos. And we are just about to hit 300,000.
0: Can you believe that? 300,000. So
1: that's how Music City Mentor was born. I'm the mentor. If you want to (laughs) come to Music City, let me help you.
0: Platinum Circle Media is your company. You are the founder and the CEO. Tell us about that. What do you do? Well. Like you, I had a background in music,
1: but I also had a lot of ideas and thoughts about other things within the music industry, one of them being the marketing and the promotional end of things. So, when I very first got to Nashville, I noticed that a lot of the writers and artists that I was working with were desperately in need of help with their social media, building a website, having an album cover designed. This was all stuff that I had already been doing for myself mm-hmm. because. My parents couldn't afford to hire me a team of people when I was 10 years old. I had to learn how to do all this stuff. Right. So it made sense for me to just volunteer and help out my friends. That's really and truly how it began. And then it seemed like overnight I had a long list of artists that I was doing all of this for. And then I had an artist offer to start paying me. And I thought, you know what? I bet you I could turn this into a company. And so in 2012, I did. And we have been going strong ever since. And we now represent Grammy, CMA, ACM, and Juno Award winning artists. What do
0: you wish you knew when you first got started?
1: I don't think we have time.
0: <laughs> we Long don't list. have time for what me to say. What comes up to the very top? If you could talk to 16-year-old JC what would you tell her?
1: I would tell her not to worry about anything but what her dreams were. Don't let any outside influence come into play because, When you move to Nashville, it's so easy to get sucked into the fact that every person in that town is more talented than the next person. So if you don't Know who you are, and you don't have your own identity, and you're not strong enough to just keep a hold of that really tight and move forward without a thought about what anybody else is doing, you're going to be much more successful much quicker. I think I had a pretty strong sense of who I was as an artist and who I was as soon as I started my business. I knew what I wanted that to be, and I had a clear vision. But if I had have thought about that the moment I moved to town, I think it would have been faster for me. But you know, there's something to be said for perfect timing. And I'm all about
0: manifesting things to come to you when they're supposed to. So let's talk about that for a second. Because one of the things that you've really stressed for me, and that I've learned from you, since we got to know each other so well, is you've got to write it down and make it real. And Without exception, you guys, every big artist that we have interviewed, Sarah Evans just recently told us that they saw their success before it even happened. I used to lay in my
1: bed when I was growing up and envision myself in the situations that I often find myself in today. And I'm not making that up. I would see myself having dinner with an artist or doing things that was so clearly my life in music. It wasn't always me on stage. It wasn't always me, you know, winning a Grammy Award or something. It was just me. (laughs) Although that will be just fine. You know, someday, (laughs) whatever. But it was me being in a musical center and in a musical scene. And I wanted that so bad from my earliest, earliest memory that I really never thought ever that maybe this couldn't happen. And I attribute a lot of the success that I've had to that. I remember laying in my bed when I was a little girl and my sister said to me, well, what are you going to do if you're, you don't make it in music? You know, what are you going to do? And I remember thinking, what are you, what are you crazy? talking about? <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? Of course I am. I, I don't have a backup plan. I don't want one. And you know, she's never asked me again to this day. I think she just knew because I was so dead set on what my life was going to be. In
0: fact, you wrote a song about dreaming big and believing. So let's play a clip of it. This is All Roads Lead to Here. By JC Don Valeris. Go on and run. Chase your dreams by the sun. And if you ever need a little
1: reminder of how you ended up there. The lead to here.
0: Let's talk about the next chapter, the next season, which we are Debuting right now, season number two of Country Music Success Stories. Give me your wish list. Who do you want to talk to this season?
1: I've got to say, well, because we've interviewed Naomi and Larry, Wynonna is definitely number one on my bucket list. I have to say that she's been, you know, one of my biggest idols growing up. I would say her, Martina McBride. I would love to talk with her. I
0: think I know who yours is. Garth Brooks for sure I mean You know I, What was that show That he did That kind of You know Garth Brooks on tour or on the road Or it was It was just It was kind of A behind the music Yeah type. it was a wonderful And I I've always been a fan of his And I've seen him in concert And I've been like Exhausted watching him Like unbelievable He's got such a big personality mm-hmm. That I'm really looking forward To seeing what that feels like When he's in the room And you said you've met him A couple I times I have met him a couple times I'll
1: tell you the story Really quickly Because it's kind of A funny one I was at the Grand Ole with an artist that was performing, uh, that was a client of mine, and my phone rang, and it was my mom. And I thought I better take this call, so I snuck into a dressing room that had the lights turned off, and I just stood behind the door and had a quick conversation with my mom. And all of a sudden, I could hear something in the background of the in the background of the dressing room, and I turned around, and standing in the dark was Trisha Yearwood and Garth Brooks unbeknownst to me or anyone else, they were getting ready to make a surprise appearance on the Opry. And I had just tucked into that dressing room without knowing. And so the minute I looked and I saw them, I said to my mom, I've got to go. I'll have to call you back. <laughs> and I, I apologized up and down. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to come in here. And they were so kind and so sweet. And they asked me why I was there, who I was there with. They were genuinely interested in me and my story. And as you know, you know, being an interviewer and if you can connect with someone on Absolutely. that level, it leaves such a lasting impression. So so
0: here's how we're going to get them to okay. do the interview. We're going to say, hey, JC's the one. You guys were in the dark <laughs> at the Grand Old Opry, and this is <laughs> our show, and blah, blah, blah. And we'd like to come over and have a chat with you. We'll talk to both of them. Okay, my other huge love and get, I'm a number one fan of Thomas Rhett. I can't get enough of him. You really? His songwriting, his singing, I love him. You have a little crush on Thomas, right? Huge. I but I think he's, you know, he talks about how much he loves his wife, blah, 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 <laughs> in every single song. So not no. an option for me. He's incredibly talented. And also, you know, I was talking
1: about opening for Leanne Rimes. How cool would it be and how full circle would it be to have her as a guest on the show? That would be an incredible moment. What do you think is the key to success in country music? I had a feeling you were going to ask me this question. My honest answer is I don't know. And here's why. Every single artist that I have had the chance to work with, talk with, be friendly with has a different answer as to how they achieve success. And that's my favorite thing about Nashville and country music, because that means there is equal opportunity for every single person who comes down there with a dream. There is no formula that you have to go in with a plan of this is how I'm going to do it. Everyone has a different path. And if you line up 100 artists, they would all have a different story. So if you come down to Nashville with belief in yourself, with the goal that you are going to, without a doubt, be successful, chances are you have a very good shot
0: at making that happen. Well, first of all, I want to tell you what a joy it is for me to do this show with you, how much I'm looking forward to season two, three, four, five, six, seven, for as long as it can possibly go on. And I'm so glad we got a chance to have this conversation and let people know kind of how our journey started and our hopes for tomorrow. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, subscribe, and leave a review. We've got another season full of legends to meet and stories to tell. So until next time, this is Candy O'Terry saying thank you for listening to Country Music Success Stories, where the stars welcome us into their homes and tell us how they made it in Nashville.